0: This is Your Working Life, a podcast with tools, inspiration, and resources to help you enjoy your career and love your life. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. I'm a speaker and a career and executive coach, and today I welcome Jennifer Petrolieri to the show. Jennifer will talk about her research-based strategies for couples with dual careers to navigate the work-life journey so they can thrive. Jennifer, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Caroline. It's great to be here.
0: Gosh, this is such an important topic. And as part of a couple that works, I am so particularly interested in learning more. What inspired you to write the book? That's my first question. Are are you in a a partnership of, of dual career workers?
1: Absolutely. So it's a combination of things. Part is my personal experience. My husband and I both work, both have careers as do a lot of our friends and colleagues. So I know this life myself. Part of it is from my academic background. I've always researched careers and really noticed when I was talking to people, they'd say, you know, if you want to understand my career, you really should talk to my spouse and understand their career as well. It was really the coming together of these two things and the realization that there's so little research in this area that made me think, you know, let's go for it and do this five-year-long
0: research project that's culminated in my book. And I'm so glad you did. We're going to dig into that in, in great detail. So one of the first things that struck me uh, in the book, you talk about three fraught stages of a working couple's relationship. And I'll pass the baton to you to help us understand those three stages and, and how we can really navigate those. Yeah. So I think when I started my research, I
1: had this naive assumption that, um, you know, dual career couples maybe hit challenges and then learn how to get past them and carried merrily along. But that's really not what I found. What I found was that there were three particular periods where these challenges were the most intense. And these mapped on to sort of career and life stages. The first one, sort of the first transition, is when in the early days of a couple's relationship. And this is a stage where we're really trying to combine our two careers. How do we make it work with two careers? Maybe we're blending families from past relationships. Maybe we're earlier in our careers and starting off. That's this really logistical, how do we make it work? The second transition tends to come at mid-career point, at mid-life point. And it's a time when we start to question, you know, what is this really for? What is my direction? What's my purpose? And again, it's a time of quite intense turmoil in couples. And the third and final transition comes a little bit later when the commitments that we had earlier on in life, maybe our children have left home, we're not in that career acceleration phase anymore. Um, and we're starting to think about what do I want with the remaining piece of my career? Thoughts of legacy, of broadening our horizons really come to the fore. Um, and so these are three very specific points um, at which dual career couples can struggle. But there are also points at which dual career couples can really thrive. And what I found made the difference was not per se what couples chose to do, but the way they went about those choices. So the couples who really fared well were those who had very explicit conversations about what mattered to them and what are the lines they were unwilling to cross and then held themselves accountable to those commitments.
0: Makes total sense. But clearly, there are traps that we can fall into during these stages. And I know in the book, you've written so eloquently about tools that can help combat these mistakes. Would you walk us through one or two?
1: Yeah. So why don't we focus on the first transition for a little bit? one that all couples are, are, are gonna face when they, when they first get together in those first few years. And at this time, there's a couple of key traps we can fall into. One is really hooking ourselves on the practical aspects of life. So a couple of examples. One might be, um, how do we prioritize our careers? Whose career takes the most important and who in the couple perhaps dedicates a little bit more time to the family, um, to keeping the household going? Very often we use money, as a proxy for for that decision-making process. Now, of course, we all need money. It's it's important. But it's not the only thing in our relationship, in our lives, that's important to us. For many of us, it's important to have growth in our careers, to have time for other meaningful pursuits, to have a sense of work-life balance. It might be important to live in a certain location. All of these things. And one of the traps couples can fall into is really not discussing what is really meaningful to them what their value are values are and how they're going to measure their life be that a specific career goal be that having time to pursue a hobby building financial security and it's couples who do that work to build if you like a sort of psychological contract around those things that can really work past those traps so that's one example
0: that is a great example, you know, and I'm, I'm grateful that in the book, you talk very clearly about how the quest for work-life balance is a lie. And, and I'm in total agreement, right? Because to me, that is an unrealistic expectation. And I think couples can really... Uh, exhaust themselves <laughs> trying to find that that balance. And it, it complicates things if there are children involved, right, or, or other relatives to the family nucleus. So what should working couples strive toward? You know, what's a more healthy and realistic approach?
1: Yeah. Absolutely. And what I found, of course, was that most people are not hooked on a work life balance that they really want, but on an ideal one, the image that's presented in the magazine, you know, we have a wonderful career and an amazing relationship and, um, you know, lots of sex and we have a wide circle of friends and we're brilliant chefs and everything else. And what really hooks people on that image, of course, is we hear it all the time and we see it all the time. And what can help couples escape from it? And I often think of this as like, what does it mean to us to be unbalanced well? If we think of all those dimensions of life, what are the three or four that to us as a couple are really important? And once we know and agree those, we can really prioritize those and drop the rest you know, for me, maybe it's not so important that I bake those cakes for every cake sale and I can let myself off the hook doing those. So be very, being very clear about those priorities really gets us psychologically off the hook with those things we're often told we should do
0: or we should invest in. And I'm, I'm grateful for that because as a career coach, I liken that to thinking about your values, right, and, and what you prioritise and how as a couple uh you might have different values but how you can come together to figure out uh how to honor both sides so how do you begin that conversation especially young couples right who are who are at the beginning of their their lifetimes
1: yeah well the first thing is the sooner the better So um, uh, there's a lovely story. I was presenting my work a a few weeks ago and I had an email from someone afterwards saying, you know, I'm in this new relationship and actually he lives in another country. So he lives far away. And I came away from your session and I thought, you know, we're going to do this over Skype. So they actually sat down over Skype. They booked a Skype date and sat down and spent two hours really thinking individually and then talking through and sharing in three areas. The first is what really matters, those questions of values, of priorities, to me and to us as a couple. The second are what are the lines we're not gonna cross? And it's really important to have these lines because they make decision making so much easier when we have lines and if something's outside, we just say no. And these lines could be things from location. Are there geographical areas we're not gonna move to? Are there geographical areas we're gonna stay to? They could be about time. How much time is too much at work? You know, When should I ring the alarm bells? How much work travel is too much travel? All these kind of lines, when they become clear, it's much easier for a couple to sort of sound those alarm bells and keep within the boundaries that are important for them. And the final area, and the area which is a bit trickier in our couples to talk about because we're not used to it, is what are the things we're afraid of happening? Now, it can feel very sensitive and very personal to talk about these. For example, you know, maybe I'm from a family in which one of my parents had an affair and they split up and i'm really worried about that happening in my couple what if i'm concerned about you know your wider family encroaching on our nuclear family these can feel very sensitive topics but what i have found through the couples i've researched and in my experience is when people are open and talk about these their partners become very sensitive to them and really help to manage the boundaries around that. So if I know you're worried about my parents and my siblings encroaching on our family, I'll be much more sensitive around family gatherings and how often people come over, etc. But if those fears aren't talked about, often this is where the slippery slope for a relationship begins so those three areas the what matters the values the what lines we're not going to cross and the fears is such an important conversation to have early on as soon as you can in a relationship but also an important conversation to revisit um, every so often and at every major transition point
0: I'm I'm so grateful that you said to revisit because this isn't a one and done conversation, right? Life evolves. And I'm also grateful for your mention of the fears and the vulnerabilities. I mean, that's what makes us human. And I think those are difficult conversations, but so crucially important. And I think what happens
1: is that people are more afraid of saying them than what actually happens. So I remember you know, I was talking to a guy um, a couple, a, a few weeks ago, and they were at that early stage in their career when they were considering having children, and they were at this real block point. And I spoke to, um, to the wife, and she said, well, I'm really trying to put it off because my husband, he travels a lot with work. And I know that when the baby's born, I'll really be that primary care t- taker, and that frightens me. And I spoke to him. And he said, I can't wait to have children. I've got it all worked out. As soon as we become pregnant, I'll give up my job and and get one that's local because I don't want to miss out on being a dad. And I thought, my goodness, they hadn't shared these plans. And of course, when we think why, she was so convinced that her fear would become a reality. She was avoiding discussing it. And he was so convinced it was a non-issue. There was no need to raise it. And so, because they were locked in their own minds, they had created an issue that in fact didn't exist. And I see this time and time again in couples. You know, our fears are much greater in our minds than in reality.
0: That is a great story. Thank you for sharing that. Jennifer, we'll be right back after a quick break. Your working life is powered by your stories. We want to hear more from our listeners about your experiences in the workplace. Tell us what challenges you've overcome or tips you've learned along the way. And even better, if you don't have the answers, let us know what issues you want to learn more about. We want this podcast to serve you in all of your career and life needs. Send me an email at caroline at caroline doubthiggins.com. So Jennifer, I'm eager to dive into the question about our culture's obsession with gender. How do you see this play out in your research and particularly in, in working couples? It's a really interesting
1: question. And on the one hand, less than you'd think, and at the same time, a lot more than you think. So I think in working couples today, particularly those sort of under 40, 45, there really is a genuine sense among men and women to do things differently. You know, we know that men um, genuinely want to be fathers, they want to invest, they want a balance between their careers. And all of this is, is great news. So we can really see that generational shift of what working couples want. However we still live in a rather conservative society and the messages we're bombarded with are that you know children are best with their mothers, men should step up and be the breadwinners, kind of man up. And so many working couples today are really caught between what they really want to do and these messages that keep pounding them down around what makes for a good couple and a good relationship and good parents. And so while on the one hand there's positive news we as a society still seem to be stuck in this. And it's curious because there is overwhelming evidence that shows that those outdated models of what men and women should do don't create any benefits for children nor for couples. So we're a little bit at a catch-22 with this gender piece at the moment.
0: That's fascinating. Any, any research on same-sex couples? Because that certainly is a different scenario.
1: Yeah, and actually there's a lot of same-sex couples in the book and, and in the research, and what I find is they are a little bit less hooked by these gender roles for, for obvious reasons. They face different challenges, you know, especially in, in some of our cultures it's still a bit more stigmatised to be in a same-sex couple, but they are able to unhook from them. And what's fascinating about this is both um, both you know, two women and two men in a couple are able to unhook in, in the same way, which shows us it's not about gender because when there's two women, they don't get as hooked into that female gender role as a woman and a man. So it's not an inherent thing about us being women or about being men. It really is society
0: that's pushing us in that direction. So good segue. Speaking of society, uh, in, in this modern day, uh, it, it's it's quite common to have both partners working. And, and I love how you discuss in the book that, prioritizing both partners' careers is essential. So no one has a less important career. However, I see this as a struggle. And I appreciate in the beginning where you said, you know, there's so many ways to think about uh, how you come together and move up your career trajectory. And you talk about a career map as a useful exercise. Tell us about that because it's not just the, okay, you make more money, we need to prioritize your career. There are so many other factors involved. So help us understand.
1: Yeah. So when we think about whose career is most important and whose career is prioritized, it's really dangerous to think in terms of who who earns the most money for two reasons. One is careers are uncertain. And if you earn the most money today, there's no guarantee you're going to be the one earning the most money in five, 10 years time. So it's a a fool's game really, but it's also a fool's game because we don't just work for money, we work because we enjoy our jobs, we want to grow, we enjoy mentoring people. Um, You know, it gives us a lot of satisfaction. And so what career mapping does is it's a tool that allows couples to look at the shape of their careers, if I can put it that way. So different careers require different levels of investment over time. If we think of those professional careers, you know, law, academia, which I'm in, medicine, all these kind of careers, there's a long period where we're not actually earning that much, but we're apprenticing and then our careers take off. There are some corporate jobs where we may need to have periods of very intense investment to get that new promotion. And then we can take the foot off the gas a little bit. So what mapping out the shape of our careers does can look at the peaks of investment we need to make and when they may occur and some of the troughs. And so how we can map ours together So that at any one time, we're not both at one of those peak investment periods. So perhaps if I give you an example, it might become clear. Take an example of um, a young couple who were at the start of their relationship together. She was training to actually be an oncologist, a doctor, and he was working in a logistics firm. He was quite a high-flying corporate person. And they decided that for the first few years while she was on her residency, His career would take priority. She was quite flexible with location. She could follow him around. But after five years when she graduated, they agreed up front that they would flip and she would be the location leader, you know, where she got that great job, that first great consulting job, um, he would follow. So by mapping out the shape of the next few years, they were able to think about who's going to lead at any one time. And who might follow and I think when I think about placing equal emphasis on careers that doesn't mean every single day there's an equal emphasis what that means is that over time we we flexibly shape that so that over time there's been an equal emphasis but at any one point one person might be investing a little bit more than the other and then we balance that out
0: so in your experience and your research, Jennifer, did you find that couples uh, with whom you spoke were excited to have these conversations once they understood the framework? Because it, it seems so logical and it, it's great to have the tools that you put forth in the book to figure out how to have these conversations. Or did you find that some were still reticent?
1: I mean, absolutely. And what I find time and time again with the research and also when I present this is that right now we just don't have the language to talk about this. And one of my ambitions for the books is to really change the conversations couples are having with each other. And in my experience, people are very hungry to have these conversations. They may feel a little bit stilted at first, but the number of emails I get from people saying, you know, it was actually quite romantic doing this is so heartwarming because. While on the surface, these can feel like tough conversations, and they certainly may tackle tough subjects, they're actually a way of really bringing couples closer together emotionally and getting us all on the same
0: page. I agree. I think it deepens trust and authenticity and the ability to listen to your partner. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't
1: agree more. And I think it's the kind of habit that if couples develop, what I found time and time again in my research, are these are the couples who could really thrive in their two careers and in their relationship.
0: Jennifer Petriliere, I learned so much from you today. Thank you so much for being on the show. It was a pleasure speaking Thank with you. you. And I want to tell our global audience about your book. It's called Couples That Work how dual career couples can thrive in love and work. And it is available on Amazon and major book retailers. And I strongly encourage you to check it out. And if you like the show, subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. And even better, leave us a review because this helps new people find our show online. And let me know what career-minded issues you would like to hear on a new show. You can find me on Twitter at C. Dowd Higgins. And a special thanks to my podcast colleagues, Laura Deck, Executive Director of Publicity and Communications, and Claire McInerney, Executive Producer. Thank you for making this show awesome for our global audience. I'm Caroline Dowd-Higgins. Thanks for listening.